We've been going through the book of Matthew, and last week is very, very, not last, yeah, last week was the baptism of Jesus. That is very much connected to where we are this morning. Um, it could really be one sermon, but it would be too long for a short sermon, and so as we split it up into two, but I'll just remind you quickly, because it's super important, is at the baptism of Jesus, the core central thing there is the pronouncement of the Father over Jesus that you are my Son in whom I'm well pleased, and the Holy Spirit is attending to that pronouncement visibly over Jesus, okay? Jesus goes straight from that to what we're about to read in his temptation in the wilderness, okay? But there's a couple of questions I want to answer before we even read it, okay? The first is because Jesus is tempted to sin in this story. It's called the temptation of Jesus. You could also call it the testing of Jesus, okay? But the question is going to come up, at least it should if you're thinking about it, which is what was Jesus actually truly tempted? Like, was this a real temptation or was he cheating in some kind of way that we can't, right? Was he... Or is it really like us? Or was this sort of an exercise he went through somehow? Um, and we, the same question comes up with the baptism. Why did Jesus get baptized? And we answered that last week. The answer to the question of whether or not Jesus was actually tempted is absolutely yes. Okay? I'll prove it to you in two verses. Hebrews 2, 14 to 18 says this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Okay, there it is. And then it reiterates the same idea in verse 15, chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus was actually tempted the way you and I are, but he didn't sin. No one in this room can claim that one. Right? Jesus is not like us in our sin. He is like us in our humanity. Right? Secondly, could Jesus have sinned? This is a little bit like, it's not really a silly question, but it's close. It's kind of like saying, could God make a rock that's too heavy for him to lift? Right? But it's important to understand because it kind of gets at the heart of who Jesus is in his nature. Um, there's been a lot of debate, a lot of fun articles to read, at least maybe fun for me. I am not burdening you with those this morning. It really comes down to how you define the fact that Jesus has both a divine nature and a human nature in one person, okay? Jesus did not convert his divine nature to a human nature. He added a human, added flesh to himself, okay? And his human will is perfectly aligned with his divine will, which is kind of what we're becoming. Our will is becoming perfectly aligned to Christ. So it's not like Jesus had, like, the devil and an angel on either shoulder, and he just always let the angel win. It's that he's one person, and his human will, unlike us quite often, was perfectly aligned with his divine will. So I would say Jesus could not sin because he would not. 
which is a mouthful, I realize. But he couldn't because he chose not to. And that's who he is. It's not just some separate part of himself, all right? Jesus is amazing in that way. All right. Those are kind of the two big, hard questions that I didn't go into too much detail. Um, but I think a lot of people will ask it. All right, so let's look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And then what I'll do is we'll read it, and then we'll look at each temptation. There's three. We'll look at each one, and we'll learn a lot from about who Jesus is. All right? Here's what it says. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now that right there, verse 1, is a lot. Who led him into the wilderness? The same Spirit who was just hovering over him when the Father said, You're my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus, that was a great moment for Jesus. Mission number one, go into the desert to be tempted. Sometimes... Obeying God leads us into dark places. And it's true for us, and it's true true for Jesus. Verse 2, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, as one would be. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you. If you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So Jesus fasts for 40 days and nights, probably drinking water and nothing else. That was like a real fast. <laughs> so he was very weak, he was very hungry. You'd be physically, think about yourself. We have a word for it we've invented called hangry. Right? When you're hungry, your blood sugar drops, and it affects your mental faculties. It affects your emotional faculties. You are not, it's not just that you're physically weak, but emotionally strong. They're all connected, right? And so it's important for us to remember that Jesus is in a, his flesh in every way is in a weakened state and he has done this on purpose in obedience to the father this is where the holy spirit has led him satan did not come to him when he was strong physically strong mentally and strong emotionally he came to him at his weakest moment satan does not play fair he really doesn't he is not interested in being fair he 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 just doesn't so he comes at jesus when he is in this weakened state And he gives them three temptations, three tests. The first we see in verse 3 where he says, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. In each of these tests, Satan is attacking the declaration of the Father regarding the eternal sonship of Jesus. 
He is attacking and challenging that moment Jesus just had at his baptism and that statement that the Father made over him, which is, you're my son. This is who you are, and this is what our relationship is, and this is what I primarily identifies your nature and your purpose is that you are my son in whom I am well pleased, my beloved son. And this is what Satan is coming against. He even poses it in the form of this tricky question, right? If you're the son of God, he's not directly questioning it. He's not that stupid. He's kind of going, look, Jesus, if all that stuff was true, then why don't you just prove it? Escape this pain you're in. Escape this trial you're in. Escape this hunger and this weakness this weakness doesn't, doesn't, isn't what a son should have to go through. All you have to do is use your power to escape it and feed yourself and make some bread. You can make bread out of a stone. You're the creator. You're the son of God. Jesus' response helps us understand what the problem is. He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3 where he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan is tempting Jesus to bypass his suffering at the cost of disobeying the Father. That's what he's telling Jesus to do. Disobey the Father and just rescue yourself. Jesus will not use his sonship to be a bad son. He says, I'm the beloved son. It is who I am, and that's what I'm going to continue to be. And he stands on that understanding. Jesus chooses to affirm his deep reliance on the Father, even in the dark place, even in suffering, even in suffering that he did not bring on himself. It's one thing for us to suffer because we did something dumb, right? We made a mistake. We sinned against someone. That relationship's now in trouble. And so we sort of feel like, well, I deserve this. It's the suffering that we did not bring on ourselves that God, in one way or another, led us into. And Satan always comes to us the same way, right? He says, look, just handle this yourself. Handle it. Your primary objective is to escape, right? This is what a son would do. And Jesus says, nope, I'm going to depend and rely on the Father. Second trap is in verse 6. It says, if you're the son of God, again, ask that sneaky question. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, where he says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So testing God's faithfulness to you itself is a lack of trust. He's asking Jesus to test God. Is he really faithful to you? He's calling into question the faithfulness of God, and that is a sin. Satan is trying to plant seeds of doubt in Jesus regarding the faithfulness of God and tempting Jesus to challenge God's faithfulness to prove him. This is a very, very common approach that we see in the world right now. This kind of, you, people pretend to be seekers when they're not really, because if you ask the question, look, if God proved himself, would you believe in him? The answer might is probably no. Well, he hasn't. It's this attitude of putting God on trial. God, you must prove yourself to me, this me, the puny human. The one that you created, the creation demanding that the creator prove himself to them is a sinful, arrogant attitude. 
It's one thing to be a true seeker and have real questions about who God is and the nature of reality and all of those things, the existence of God, and to ask those questions from an honest place. God has an enormous amount of patience for that. But when you come to God testing him as though he is one that can be tested, it's a different story. And Satan is asking Jesus, throw yourself off of here and we'll see if you're really the son of God. I think it's really slick the way Satan quotes Psalm 91 but leaves out the command to trust in God. Isn't that interesting? He pulls, talk about pulling scripture out of context. Right? He chops off part of it and says he, he leaves out the trust in God command in Psalm 91 and he just says, hey, look, there's a verse. He leaves out the trust in God part because that's what he wants Jesus not to do. Then number three, we see in verse 9, it says, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Wow. That's what Satan wants. That's ultimately what he wants from us is worship. In this final test, Satan offers to give Jesus the reward of his eventual death without the death. This is what Jesus gains. It's part of what he gains in his death and his resurrection is the world, including us. And Satan says, look, you can have that. I'll give it to you. I'll reward you, and you don't have to die. All you have to do is just bow down and worship me. Change teams. I think this is where Satan really offended Jesus. You can see in his tone, this is where he raises his voice and commands him to leave. Because this is the ultimate blasphemy for Jesus. Because Jesus is what? He is the Son of God, the beloved Son. He, he, he has chosen to make his existence about being submitted to the Father and worshiping the Father. And to ask him to not worship the Father is to attack the very nature of his being. Jesus is a son fully submitted to the Father and will not worship another, and he commands Satan to leave. So what's the point here? And I think often this gets taught as a kind of primer for dealing with temptation, or we'll say, well, this is an example of it's important to, to memorize Scripture to defend yourself against the enemy. And that's true, but it's not the point, okay? It's not the big point here of this testing. Jesus is not giving us an object lesson about memorizing Scripture. The big truth here is Hebrews 2 and 4 shows us, which I read earlier, that that's the biggest truth. Jesus is the eternal Son of the Father who has taken on flesh, and he has suffered every temptation that we have, yet he overcame it unlike us. Where we have been tempted and failed, he has been tempted and overcame. What good, ultimately, is his sinlessness if he was never tempted to begin with? I'm going to get into Romans 8, and it might be a mistake, all right? Because I might open up more questions than I'm going to answer. However, I'm going to do it anyway, all right? Just read Romans 8, the whole chapter, like 12 times this week, all right? Romans, I'm just going to read two selections. Romans 8, 14 to 17. I think this is very helpful to understand the big idea here. Verse 14, 
For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Then if you jump down in chapter 8 to 29 and 30, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so this ties us back into last week. You've been made a son or a daughter of the Father in Christ. That is who you are. And it is the basis, Romans 8 is about, that is your adoption as a son and a daughter of God in Christ is the basis of how you deal with sin and temptation. It is how you become more holy and sanctified. It's on the basis of this sonship and daughtership that God has predestined you to overcome temptation just as Jesus did. Jesus himself has ordained in heaven that you will make it all the way home. You will be glorified. I love in Romans 8 that the word glorified in verse 30 is past tense. You have been glorified. It's like this doesn't feel very glorious sometimes. I mean, look at me, right? It has already been done from God's eternal perspective. Your glorified Christ-likeness has already been accomplished in heaven in Christ. Now, that's great news. This is about more than just, well, I need to memorize Scripture so when Satan comes to me and tempts me, I can fire off some verses at him. That's great. That's a great thing to do. Don't not do that. But there's a deeper thing here, which is that you and I, we are sons and daughters of God in Christ, and that is how we resist temptation. Look, if you are struggling by constantly failing to overcome temptation, in some area in your life. It is ultimately, you can trace that down to a problem in your understanding of your sonship or daughtership in Christ. At the foundation of it, there's a weakness there. Your daily effort to overcome temptation is linked to your position in God's family. Whether or not you're successful in your resistance to temptation is a function of whether or not you are keeping your heart grounded in your adoption as a daughter or a son of the Father in Christ. That's where it comes from. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. That is the, the grounding of it. Whenever you're failing to overcome t- temptation, I'm confident that you can always trace that failure to a lack of faith in your adoption. God's adoption of you as a son and daughter is permanent. It is absolute, it is permanent, it is forever. He doesn't unadopt you. He says, you're it. And it's paid for by the blood of his son, Jesus. Not by your good works. Not by your living up to the title son of God (laughs) or daughter of God. But because Jesus 
did us, the point of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, is to say, I am being tempted in a way that you have been and will be tempted, and where you fail, I overcome. And then what does he do with that status? He dies and he gives it to you. So when you see Jesus resisting Satan, you see Satan flee from Jesus at his command, that has already been accomplished for you. So can you see why when you stand before God and perhaps your sin and weakness are on display in perfect reality, it will not be a badge of shame It'll be a, a testimony to the glory of Jesus and what he's done for you. It's why there is no shame in the kingdom of God. Before you acted sinfully, you believed sinfully. <laughs> in every sin, you are trading your birthright for a satanic counterfeit. When you give in to temptation, what's happening in your soul is that you are tr saying, you're saying, oh, I'll give you my sonship and I'll trade it for this filthy counterfeit in its place. What you're failing to see and realize and embrace and lean on in your heart is that whatever you're suffering under right now, whatever temptation you're facing, Jesus has already faced it. And he didn't just face it to commiserate with you so he can understand you and you can feel understood now that you're being tempted. He faced it and overcame it for you. Your overcoming is in him, not in you. you are, your overcoming is in clinging to your sonship or your daughtership with him. I know this brings up lots of questions. Right, well, what's the role of confession of your sin and repentance and all those things? But I'm leaving that for another time. Because I'm convinced that the more you lean on and put your faith in and put your, the grounding of your life on that simple truth, I am a daughter of the king. Even in my sin, I'm a daughter and I'm a son and I belong to him. And Jesus has overcome. It's how you bounce back from the worst failure you can imagine. So I would like to pray for us <clears throat> right now that this simple truth that the overcoming of Jesus as a son and that his sonship has been transferred to you would actually be applied to you by the Spirit. I keep having this picture of what I want God to do <laughs> for you, which there would be kind of like you standing there in the place of Jesus at his baptism and that your experience of this truth would be like that, would be that real, where the voice of the Father says to you, you are my son, you are my daughter, my beloved son, my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased, and that you would also be there with Jesus in the temptation with Satan and all of his sneaky words and all of his power coming and challenging that sonship. And instead of you staying there with your chest out like you're all that, that you would just lean on Christ and his overcoming. That would be your approach to your life and your sanctification, not this bravado of I've got it all together, watch me, I got this.
That's what I want God to do. So I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to descend on you, right, right now, and that this is what he would minister to you here in this room and also online. So why don't we stand up together, if you could. So why don't you just get your, your heart in a position of just receiving from God, okay? Just open yourself up. Say, God, I'm open to you. I'm open to your spirit, and I'm going to pray for you. Holy Spirit, I ask you now, as we sit in the, the truth of your word, God, that the Holy Spirit now would descend on us just as he did on Jesus. As we hear, we have already heard the Father say, you are my beloved son and daughter in whom I'm well pleased. And we have seen Jesus overcome temptation. And we have seen Paul take those words and give them to us, show us that Jesus has given them to us. That overcoming has been applied to us forever. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask you to administrate that truth to our hearts right now. You would apply it to us, that we would hear it and experience it and put our faith in it. And God, whatever there is failure in this room, God, with every single one of us, there is failure to live up to the title. God, that we would see you applying Jesus' overcoming to that. Or that you would wipe away shame and regret and fear and panic, anger, lust, all of it. And that you would wipe it away by showing us that we belong to you forever. So God, we receive that from you right now by faith in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. How about we do a benediction? Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Love you guys.